John 5, 1-18 After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been sick for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you even more that you are a God who heals and brings to life out of sickness and paralysis. Lord, I pray that you would bring life this morning, uh, even into my own heart of paralysis. Um, I pray that you would be with each one of us, Lord. Speak to us in your spirit, Lord. We have a need to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I discovered backpacking in the summer of 2000, and this illustration is not going to work for some of you, but that's okay, because I'm excited about backpacking, and see if you could hang with me for a minute and translate this. Uh, I didn't do a lot of camping growing up. Our family just didn't do that kind of stuff. We didn't have that kind of equipment, but my best friend in high school and college, he did, and his family owned everything you would ever need to go backpacking. And uh, so in August of 2000, he hooked me up. Uh, we were both on summer break from college, which is an amazing time. And uh, we were both living in Arizona at the same time. His parents lent us all their camping gear and their Ford Explorer. And so we headed out to the White Mountains in eastern Arizona on the border of New Mexico. It is a, a high-altitude place with mountains and pine forests and elk and deer and crisp air that is neither too hot nor too cold, at least in August. Uh, and so we parked at the trailhead, and I was uh, understandably a little bit nervous because I'd never done this before, and I understood that all of our stuff 
to survive, we were going to be carrying with us on our backs. Uh, but it turned out that the trail was not as hard as I was expecting. And the pack was not as heavy as I was expecting. And the views and the vistas and the animals were amazing at every step. And I discovered that uh, camping food is amazing. (laughs) Because when you're out there by yourself, anything with sugar and salt and fat tastes awesome. Uh, And so I'm having this cloud nine experience. Uh, The second, we were there for two nights and three days. And the second day in the afternoon, we were descending one of the hills that we climbed on the trail. And we came down to the bottom and the trail rounded this corner and came out into this meadow which at one point was probably a pond, but it had kind of silted up and filled up with this lush sediment, and so it was dry and flat and filled with beautiful, glistening, shining, green, waist-high grass, just shimmering in the crisp, fresh breezes. Uh, And the, the meadow was probably about a quarter mile across, maybe a little bigger, And behind us was hemmed in by the mountain, and on the far side, on three sides, by these beautiful pine forests. And I kid you not, on the far side of the meadow, two elk just hanging out. And uh, thankfully, Ryan and I were not on a tight schedule, and so we immediately decided this this is the place we're going to camp tonight. And so we left the trail and crossed the little stream, the clear, fresh-flowing water that flowed through the meadow, walked across the meadow, wading through this beautiful grass. Uh, And on the other side, right near where the elk had been, was this beautiful protected spot with no sticks and no stones, just perfect for our tent. And uh, so we camped out our tent and made our dinner and just put our feet up and relaxed. And that night, under the stars, I had one of the most awesome night sleeps I have ever had, ever. It was... In biblical terms, a moment of Sabbath. It was a moment of perfect peace and rest. <clears throat> Sorry. And joy. It's, it's a moment where everything is right with the world. And all the senses seem to be in tune. And all of your relationships are harmonious. Uh, and Probably for that very reason, I spent the rest of my college years spending hundreds of dollars acquiring backpacking equipment (laughs) and going over and over again because I will do whatever it takes to get back to that Sabbath moment, Uh, whether it's acquiring backpacking equipment and going backpacking uh, or buying books to figure out how to get my children to sleep or... (laughs) buying fresh ingredients to cook a home-cooked meal or going out to eat or whatever it is, I live trying to get back to that moment. And I believe that you do too. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is that you do that because you were made for that. Um, Our passage this morning is in John 5, but... Because the miracle and the healing and everything about the conversation takes place in the context of Sabbath, I want to back up just a moment to kind of rediscover what this whole Sabbath thing is about. I want you to see that that's what it's about. It's Sabbath is about that perfect peace and rest when all is right with the world. And I want you to see that you long for it for a good reason, because it's what you were made for. If you flip back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, the Lord creates the world out of nothing 
by the word of his power in the space of six days, and all very good. And there's this pattern where he speaks, he says, let it be, and it is, and then he says, "Mm, that is good. And then it says, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And then he does it again, and he says, "Mm, this is good. And then it says, there was evening and there was morning, the second day. There was evening and there was morning, the third day, and so on with the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day. And when God finishes everything, he says, "Mm, this is really, really good. So on the seventh day, he rests from all of his work. It's the first Sabbath. It's the moment where everything was the way that it should be and Adam and Eve were there in the garden with everything they needed, surrounded by good things and harmonious relationship with each other and with God and with the earth. And the one thing we don't hear on that first day is it was evening and morning the seventh day because that day was never supposed to end. That that life in that garden is what you were made for. And you want to get back there for a good reason. Uh, As one of my friends put it, that all human beings are made with a Sabbath instinct. It is in our guts to want to get back to that place. That's why in everything we do, in our work, in our relationships, in our personal time, we are working longing to get back to that place. Because it didn't stay that way. It took about two and a half chapters to get messed up, and Adam and Eve rebelled, and as a result, the fall happened. And uh, you can see in the very first moment of the fall, there's, there's disharmony everywhere you look between Adam and Eve, between them and God, between them and the earth, and that Sabbath instinct has become undone very like what happened last Monday, which was, as by all accounts, as far as I can tell, a beautiful day in Boston with great weather and an awesome event where the whole town came out to celebrate and be together and to enjoy the human spirit and the human body with runners at peak condition racing in a race for the fun of it, and boom, undone. Sabbath is undone again because that's the world that we live in. It's the way the world works ever since the fall. We see in Genesis 3.15, at the moment the fall happens, God enters in to begin bringing redemption and restoring Sabbath right away. He says to the serpent that brought about the destruction, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, It's a little bit of a cryptic saying, but I believe that he's referring to Christ. And he's beginning to talk about his plan and beginning to make promises that from now on, even though Sabbath is destroyed, I will begin working to bring it back. And that ultimately, because Jesus is the one who's spoken of in this passage, Jesus is the Sabbath maker. He's the one who comes back on a mission to redeem and restore that Sabbath rest and peace and joy. God and Jesus are about that work. That's what they do. That's what he came to do. If you take a look at our passage back in John 5, 
begins this way. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, socially invalid. And Jesus, and I want you to see, delays his feast. That he has come to Jerusalem at a time of celebration, and he heads towards the temple, and then irk, makes a sharp right turn and heads straight for the pool. Because he knows that this place does not work the way it was supposed to. And he's here to change it. Many of Jesus' miracles were performed on the Sabbath, like this one. It became a theme of his ministry in all of the Gospels. That Jesus understands our afflictions and our sufferings. And he came to work on the Sabbath and to restore Sabbath on the Sabbath day and in all of life. The first thing I want you to see is that you were made for this kind of peace and joy and rest. That Sabbath instinct you have is a good thing. And the second thing I want you to see this morning is that we are not really interested in letting Jesus bring that sort of rest to us. Uh, We're in the middle of a sermon series on the signs that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. And if you've been here, you'll remember the first sign is Jesus changing water into wine. It is a sign of pure joy. Jesus is saying, look, I know that there is not enough wine here to go around. Or in our terms this morning, there's not enough Sabbath. So watch me. I can make Sabbath out of nothing. I can make way more Sabbath than you'll ever need. And then the second sign... He does something similar. He heals a sick person, bringing life from death and sickness. But this time he does it from a distance in a way that invites faith and requires a little bit of desperation. That he needs us to come to him in desperation because we don't have this kind of Sabbath and we need it. I remember that was one of the themes from last Sunday is our need for desperation. We're going to see this morning in this sign that uh, Jesus will restore the Sabbath, will restore this rest by healing this man at the pool. But part of his Sabbath restoration work will be disrupting and exposing the ways that we tend to avoid that desperation. See, first he shows us that we need to be desperate and now he's, he's turning up both the joy and the heat just a little bit more. Because we don't really live lives of desperation, needing him most of the time. I know that I don't. He's going to disrupt and expose the ways that we avoid desperation and avoid needing him by creating our own false Sabbaths. We are Sabbath fixers, Sabbath fakers, pseudo-Sabbath makers. And Jesus oftentimes must begin his work by undoing what we've set about doing. There's two ways we're going to see this this morning. The first way is by taking a look at this poor guy at the pool. Let me read on a little bit. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. The man, the man cannot walk. And uh, as Brandon pointed out earlier, 38 years is a long time. I was on math team in junior high, and so I've got the skills to do a little bit of math and figure out that 38 years ago was 1975. 
So the guy has been an invalid since 1975. And at this point in world history, 38 years, that's most of a lifespan. And he is camped out at the pool. Here's the deal with the pool. Uh, It doesn't quite explain it fully in our text, but there is a tradition in that day that every now and then the water in the pool would stir or bubble. We're not quite sure what happened, but something obvious started happening to the water. And the belief was that when the water was stirred, it was an angel stirring the water. And whoever was the first person into the water, that person would have their ailments cured and healed. And so the pool becomes this camp of hurting, afflicted people. It's a, it's a place of the wound. It's a camp of pain. It's a group of people whose whole lives are oriented around their pain. They live at the pool waiting for a chance that by some means, some measure, somehow, someone, maybe this pool will relieve me from my pain. I don't want to make fun of them. The pain is real. The guy could not walk for 38 years. And again, we live in that kind of world. We live, even here today, in a city of pain and affliction, where for many people it's hard to even get up in the morning and make themselves come to a place like this. And maybe that's where some of you are. And I want you to hear again that Jesus knows and cares that he made his way to the pool, to the place of pain, because he has power over that kind of suffering. Uh, but he's doing more than just healing, like I said. He's, he's going to disrupt and expose a little bit. And he, he begins by asking a stupid question. He walks up to this man who, it says, somehow Jesus knew had been here for a long time. And he says, do you want to be healed? Come on. But his question works because it exposes what he's trying to get at. Because what does the man say? More importantly, what does the man not say? The man does not say, yes, I want to be healed. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I am going, another steps down before me. I kind of interpret this this way. Look, dude, if you're going to make fun of me, that's fine. But if you really care, here's what you do. Why don't you just sit down right next to me, and we can wait, and when the water stirs, you just throw me in. Because that's how I'm going to get better, and I've been sitting here for a long time, and it hasn't happened yet. But if you don't really care, why don't you just go ahead and head on your way, because I'm just sitting here by the pool, all right? It's an answer to me that's not really hope-filled. He's got a plan, but it strikes me more as worn out, cynical, resigned. The man is uh, controlled and defeated by his suffering. His whole life is defined by it. He doesn't have the ability to get himself in the pool. He's been here a long time. No one has helped him before. He has no one to help him. Basically, he's telling Jesus what to do. Uh, And for some of us, that's, that's the way we live. Seeking out anything, a pool, anything, 
that will relieve our suffering and affliction. Whatever it is that will do that, we will go there and we will camp out and wait, whether it works or not. Uh, As one commentator put it, the pool is kind of a picture of the world. We're camped out by the pool, waiting for some kind of healing, and at the same time defeated and destroyed by our loneliness. Uh, There's a book by Charles Dickens called Great Expectations, and in it, there's a character named Miss Haversham. And uh, she was engaged, and she was going to get married. And then her husband-to-be stood her up at the altar. And the rest of her life becomes defined by that event. Uh, the main character of the book, Pip, by the time he meets her, she's elderly, living alone in a large, falling-down house by herself, still wearing her wedding dress with the wedding cake still on the table and the feast still laid out. It is, it's a disgusting picture. The book isn't even really about her. It's about Pip, but somehow for me, that's, that's the image that sticks in my mind. I've heard it's that way for other people as well. And that she has lived a life defined and defeated by her pain and suffering to the point where it actually becomes preferable. It is more comfortable for her to take residence up inside the hurt than to experience desperation and longing for its renewal. Uh, It's an extreme example, but I think that on some level is what's going on in us anytime um, we are seeking after something but also just, just defeated and given up in our suffering. The man doesn't say yes to Jesus when Jesus asked him to be healed. Um, here's a takeaway from that. Once you become defined by your pain, you miss out on a lot of good stuff. The man did not catch on to the fact that the Redeemer of the universe was standing there ready to heal him and to relieve him from his pain. Here's the, the punchline on this, this first fall Sabbath. I might put it this way, that the man is no longer desperate for Sabbath. Because he realizes that Sabbath is no longer really possible for him. And so now, in kind of a strange sense, he doesn't have to worry anymore or be desperate because the pain has become more comfortable and familiar than the desperation. I'm going to leave this poor guy alone for a couple minutes uh, because he's not the only person in the passage that that Jesus is wrestling with a little bit here. In my outline, I called them the Pharisees, and then I noticed that the passage doesn't really call them the Pharisees. The passage just calls them the Jews, so sorry, Pharisees. (laughs) There's bad stuff coming for them, too, but we'll talk about the Jews this morning. Uh, We'll come back to this, but the man gets healed, and he leaves the pool, which is right next to the temple. And so immediately, the Jews and the religious leaders of the day see him. And I'm sure because that they were engaged in caring for the poor, they recognized him and they immediately rejoiced. Praise the Lord! Sabbath has come to our town. The most miraculous Sabbath manifestation in a thousand years has just happened because a guy who couldn't walk can walk. Sabbath is here. Yay! But that's not really the way they respond. They say to him, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
Literally, they say, you don't have the right to do that. What do they mean, it's not lawful? Well, they're not referring to anything in the Old Testament. Uh, And I might say this in the Old Testament's defense, that Sabbath in the Old Testament, I believe, was set up to give you a reminder about the fact that we long for that kind of Sabbath peace and joy and rest for a good reason. Because we're made for it. And to remind us that God is the one who's going to bring it back and we're going to camp out and wait one day a week and remind ourselves that someday the Sabbath rest will come. Someday someone will come back who can set these things right and we're waiting for that. But the Pharisees, the Jews, sorry, (laughs) have completely misunderstood the proper understanding of Sabbath. They're thinking of it in legalistic terms as in God commanded me to not do stuff on the Sabbath So if I don't do stuff, he'll like me. So I better create an extra barrier of human rules. We've talked about this before. Around those rules to make sure I really, really never cross those rules. And then God will be impressed. And if you think that through, you realize they have actually done a 180. That if the whole point of Sabbath is to remind us to return to desperation that we need someone to save ourselves and they are not only not doing that, they are keeping themselves from desperation by their legalistic human-made rules. And when you find a prescription for yourself on what's going to make Sabbath for you and someone messes that with, with that prescription, you will get angry, just as they do here. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? So now not only are we not concerned about joy and Sabbath rest and the fact that this guy just got healed, we're not even concerned anymore about the fact that he's breaking the rules. What's most concerning to us is that anyone out there would tell someone to do something against our own Sabbath prescription. And so we soon hear for the first time, that the leader's indifference and confusion about Jesus is moving towards anger and eventually to hate. And we hear at the end of the passage, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Think about that. A guy just got healed and they want to kill him for the healing. And that's what I think is so remarkable about this passage that, that there is a human tendency to be so ingrained in our own prescription for how we're going to get rest for ourselves that you will kill people who will get in your way, especially if they're the one that want to make rest for you a different way. I used to think I was a morning person. Because I started getting up early in college because I had to, because I was a music major. And I discovered that those first quiet hours of the morning are a beautiful time in which you can read and reflect and wake up slowly and have breakfast by yourself. Sometimes I read the Bible. Sometimes I just read the news because I love the news. Uh, My latest addiction these days is Twitter. Not because I ever tweet or that I want anyone to ever follow my tweets or know that I tweet, I'm like a secret Twitter user. Because I discovered along the way that all of my favorite journalists have Twitter accounts and they tweet links to their articles. And so my Twitter feed is like all these guys from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And so I wake up at 6 in the morning and I reach over and I grab my phone 
and I open up Twitter, and I say, and because I live in Hawaii, all the day's news has taken place all day, already. <laughs> and so I can sit there in my bed by myself and say, John Osterauer of Wall Street Journal, tell me about my day. What's happening out there? And I had this peaceful little Sabbath moment to myself. And then I got married and had kids. And I know somewhere in my heart that what I really should do is get out of bed and get my screaming children out of their beds. And then when I finally don't do that and my wife does it for me, then I should get up and help her. But really, it just makes me angry. I wish that they would stop screaming. All of them. (laughs) So that I could have my little Sabbath moment. I don't really like the morning. I just like being by myself. (laughs) Whatever it is that you think will bring you that rest, that is your Sabbath prescription. Whatever it is that you think will set the world right, our society, our country, your lives, your relationships. One commentator uh, came up with a list that I found particularly provoking. He said, here's a list of Sabbath prescriptions. Diversity, patriotism, tolerance, personal responsibility, yin and yang, environmentalism, lower taxes and greater personal responsibility, higher taxes and greater social responsibility, random acts of kindness, or whatever it is that you think the world needs, and Jesus says those things don't work. And he's challenging the Jews and us to give up those things and return to him. And really to return to a sense of desperation that nobody out there can make a Sabbath for us except Jesus, the Sabbath maker. I think there are few better things that can happen to a person earlier in their days than to realize that they do not have enough They do not have what it takes to provide themselves rest and to come to a point of soul desperation where we need Jesus to do something for us that cannot be done by any other means and to be willing to take up residence there. It's the beginning point of Christian faith. If you're here this morning exploring Christianity, this is the thing that I would have you know, that there is a Jesus out there and he has power over this kind of stuff, and he can give you rest, but you must give up your own ways of finding it and let him do it for you. Even if it doesn't happen the way you expected or on the timeline we expected are all right now. For those of us who are believers, this is why I think that you still don't really trust Jesus to give you this kind of rest. It worked for a little while. It was exciting at first, but it doesn't take long for us to find our own prescriptions again. And somehow, even if they're not working, it seems more trustworthy if I can do it myself. We will not let someone else provide rest for us. Let's summarize this kind of false Sabbath this way. I don't need to be desperate for Jesus' help because I will make my own Sabbath. And if anyone messes with my Sabbath prescription, that makes me angry. So what do we do? Two things. The first one is this, to accept Jesus as the true and only Sabbath maker. 
aside from messing with these people, Jesus walks in, in this passage, as he does in every passage in the Gospels, and he commands the scene. He owns the day. The guy made heaven and earth by his words. It's not a big deal for him to totally disengage with the lame man's pool theology and just say, get up. Take your bed and walk. And it happens. Jesus has power over our suffering of that of the man at the pool. This is his mission. I think this is what he's alluding to at the end of the passage. He says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. It's the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. He's working to bring back the Sabbath. He doesn't really acknowledge the pool man's theology or the Pharisee's legalism. He disrupts them both and with a word heals the man. Rise is literally the word. It's the same word that he will use of himself later. He is talking about something more, something fully restorative, resurrection related. Rise. So the second thing we must do is be willing and ready for Jesus, our Sabbath maker. We must be ready to come to him in desperation and for him to do something more than we were expecting. This is a sermon by itself, so I won't dwell on this long, but we are beginning to see in this passage that Jesus' agenda will always be about more than just relieving human suffering. It is about relieving human suffering, but it's more than that. Why else would he walk into a pool filled with a multitude of hurting people and then heal one and leave? Sometimes... He will heal our wounds through our desperation for us to see if that's enough, just like he comes back to this man later. Sometimes he will leave us for a time with the wound. And either way, he is, I promise you, ultimately working for our Sabbath redemption, which involves relief from human suffering, and it also involves relief from our suffering and enslavement to sin. This is what Jesus means when he says to the man, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Jesus is beginning to, as I said, pull back the edge of his agenda. He wants to relieve this man from his paralysis. And also from the deeper problem he doesn't see, sin. And so when he comes to us, inviting us into desperation, inviting us to long for this. He is teaching us to be desperate and teaching us to long for something more than we wanted. We must learn to want something more from him than we are prone to want, a fuller, deeper, human type of redemption that restores us completely to what we were made for. The man didn't know where his healing had come from. And perhaps some of you here have also received kindnesses that you don't know where they have come from. I encourage you to consider where they may have come from, from a hand of one who wants to heal you and yet wants so much more from you. Just return to him, depend on him, and ask him what more he might have for us. Jesus has power to bring us a real Sabbath to heal the whole man. And by belief, we might receive rest in the arms of Jesus 
healing from our afflictions, but also a rest that will help us camp out in our desperation until he, at his time, will relieve all of our suffering and return us to that moment of peace and rest. Let's pray together. Jesus, I am a man who needs rest. I believe we all are. Give us today, this day, a taste, a moment of that rest, of that Sabbath. Bring it about in our lives. Help us be desperate. Lord, even more than that, I pray that you would end our desperation soon, that you would come back quickly, that you would make all things new. Give us life today through Christ the Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.